Welcome to Season 6 of the Farm Trainers Podcast, Episode 8, published on October 25th, 2023. We're part of ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts. In this episode, we'll be talking with Rob Morse about his Slow Facts blog and the interesting information he has there. Sit back and relax for another interesting episode of the Farm Trainers Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Farm Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage and their competitive pricing. If you're a certified instructor, you can get FTA coverage and you can get a special 10% off by listening to this podcast by using promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Manus X. I've been a longtime Manus user from their original Manus X to the new Manus X10 that came out with a couple of years ago and now excited about their most recent product, Manus Blackbeard X. The Manus Blackbeard X combines the Manus 10 and the Manus Blackbeard system into one platform for the AR-15. It unleashes a completely new capability with in-depth dynamic shooting analysis, including motion-based analysis and multi-target engagement, something no one has done before. Manus Blackbeard X connects to your smartphone via Bluetooth and can easily download the Manus X application for Android and iOS. The Manus X application gives you history on all your previous sessions, as well as new drills for the modern sporting rifle. Manus X changed the way I train, and I think you'll find the Manus Blackbeard X is a great training aid for yourself and your students. Check out Manus X for more information on their Manus products, including the new Manus Blackbeard systems. That is ManusX.com. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Rob Morris from Slow Facts and Self-Defense Gun Stories. Welcome, Rob, and thank you for coming on the podcast tonight. It's been my pleasure. Super. Well, Rob, in case somebody hasn't listened to your uh, podcast before or read your uh, blog before, can you tell our listeners a little about who Rob Morris is and what you do in the uh, 2A community? Right. Well, the most obvious things first, I host the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast comes out once a week, about 20 minutes. I'm a co-host on the Second Amendment Foundation's Polite Society podcast. That runs 90 minutes, but we've been doing it for a decade. I write the Slow Facts blog. There are about 2,200 articles there. My writing is picked up at Clash Daily, and it's also carried at Opslens. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, obviously, you're very well uh, connected into things, which kind of leads us to why we wanted to on the podcast today. And that is, you know, from a good source of information for our instructors that are out there, um, your Slow Facts blog, you tackle a lot of different topics. You also go along and dig down into the facts further than just uh, what we hear in the mainstream media and the normal stories. Can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, find those facts out and what, what kind of digging you do? Well, I think I do the same thing that a lot of us do, oh, we hear a number uh, that's carried at Ammo Land or at uh, the Truth About Guns, Bearing Arms, but then I'm able to go and read the paper. Um, uh, we, the Last year, the guy who, Dr. William English, did an enormously in-depth survey of firearms owners in the United States. Well, I read the paper. It's 135 pages. Just go read it. Um, but then you, not, that all, not only gives you more answers, it also gives you some more questions, um, which is, 
becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy if you're not careful. You've always got more to do. Um, you know, I'll take John Lott's articles. Thank goodness for Dr. John Lott. Mm-hmm. But then I want to interpret them in ways that our neighbors can understand. Oh, there were self-defenses this common. Okay, what does that mean? Oh, one out of 9,000 of us will actually stop a murder with a gun this year. Wow, that's significant. Well, is it? Well, we want to compare it to how many times the bad guys commit murder. And most people can't weigh those two things. The news doesn't give us both halves of the story. That's my job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where uh, slow facts and I read over the stories. I've been reading them for about the last year. It is one of those to where you know they talk about the number of gun deaths, you know, the gun violence, all these different kind of uh, talking points that we hear constantly in the news. And on your your blog, you actually go along, drill down. Okay, there's forty five thousand deaths a year caused caused by guns, but then you start drilling down to figure out how many lives are actually saved every year from uh, by having guns. How you know right. how many how many of those forty five thousand guns are accidental versus criminal? Because we know everybody knows that you can pass all the laws you want in the world, but criminals are criminals because they don't follow laws. So passing new ones doesn't doesn't do anything to stop it. Well, and now we think, oh, you gun owners, you're not very well trained. You probably shoot the wrong guy a lot, and that's not true. That's Hollywood. That may be the fears of our unarmed neighbors that aren't familiar with the moral weight of carrying a gun. And thank goodness, and you know this because you've, you've seen it over and over, for whatever reason, maybe it's somebody who's dragged along to a, a, a firearms instruction class. My husband's got a gun. I should learn how to handle it because it's in the home. And they realize... This gun is heavy. It comes with a very significant moral weight when you put it on. If there's a problem, there's going to be a gun involved because you brought it. And if our neighbor hasn't been in that situation, they don't know how, how cautious our neighbors are. And again, you see it. I get to write about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there are so many different angles to uh, you know that you've covered over the last year uh, you know we've got the weight of just carrying a gun you know the moral implications but also tackling some of the bigger issues like red flag laws because ah. we've talked about red flag laws on the podcast before from a mental health perspective and different things about how terrible they are because yes we we, we go along we remove a gun from somebody who is you know suicidal or dangerous but we don't do anything else to help that person which seems to be counter counter productive if we're really trying to protect society or help that person yeah it's we arrested the gun that seems stupid to me mm-hmm. um given that now here's something that most people don't know most violent crime doesn't involve guns now mm-hmm. a, a fair percentage of the homicides do but we still there's that's people still get hit hit and punched and hit with things they call that aggravated assault that number is way bigger than murders now what we are not very good at understanding is that's sometimes not for lack of trying people would have killed them but we have great medical care it was mm-hmm. attempted murder in disguise and it really gets charged as aggravated assault 
Um, yeah, our, our neighbors don't know. But again, it's the proportions. We use a fire. The, the great news is that most people will never be violent. If they do, it's one and done. Often involves alcohol. They go, wow, what, how did I get in that fight? You were intoxicated. And that's it. That's all they'll ever do. Actual criminals are wonderfully rare, and yet self-defense is quite common. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. And the uh, you know self-defense, and, and I think it's very important for gun owners and instructors especially to know these kind of facts because these are the ones that people will bombard us with when they're talking about, you know, they will take facts from mainstream media. And never have dug into it. And that's where, you know, you know, are you, you know, do you want to go along and have more school shootings and want to have this and <laughs> want to have that? And you go along and it's like, and if you've got the facts, you know that, okay, wait a minute, you know, school shootings, um, uh, you know, ma- mass shootings are extremely rare still, you know, overall. And at the same time, uh, you know, look, you know, like you brought up, we're, are we worried about violent crime or are we just worried about gun crime? Because there, those are a lot of, there's differences there because all, if all we're doing is focusing on the gun, we're not doing anything to prevent the other violent crime that happens from people's hands, baseball bats, um, you know, knives, hammers, all those types of things. Rob, I want to back you up. Um, one, you mentioned red flag laws. California mm-hmm. is the poster child for gun control. They have red flag laws. They've had them for a while and they lead the nation in mass murders didn't really work. So most people don't know that and the media won't tell you. I've been, you're from Ohio. I've been very lucky. I was at an NRA convention and someone from Faster came up, a mutual friend of ours, I'm sure, Jim Irvine. Mm-hmm. And he said, Rob, we train volunteer school staff to defend themselves. And then we throw an invisibility cloak over them because we don't want anybody to become a target. Okay, so these Wonderful people have made the moral determination. I'm walking toward the sound of the gun because I'm going to protect my kids. Could I come home at night? Can we better the odds? So, Bob, we didn't mention I'm involved with Faster. I've been through five different courses in three different states. I write about it. I think I've just done done over 100 articles about it. So, um, that's sort of a bridge between firearms instruction and instructors and concealed carry. Um, they're dedicated staff. They're concealed, but they're, they are a cut above. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Um, I went through the faster training. One thing that I was uh, very um, well surprised and also at the same time, you know, glad to see the school staff that were there were not the gun nuts. They were committed people who wanted to learn how to use a gun effectively to do it. And some of them had some reservations about it, but at the same time, they realized that if somebody doesn't step up and do something, you're not talking about one or two people in a school shooting. You're talking about, you know, double digits. And that's where, yes. you know, for people going along and stepping out of their comfort zone and say, I need to do something. We need more of that, you know, quite frankly. Um, I, I tell this I had a very similar experience since we've both had it. I think it's pretty common. I've had it more than once. You see someone because the staff put pressure on the students in these classes. When do you, when can you shoot? 
here's a steel target. When can you hit it? Okay, tomorrow, and we're going to walk up toward that target until you're ready to shoot, and I'll shoot right after you do. Well, now we're going to put a backstop around it, so we'll see if you missed. And the next day, we're going to put children's faces around it. We're trying to dial up the psychological stress. And some people, the weight of making a mistake, it's hard for them to bear. And they mm-hmm. say, I don't know if I can do that. So we, they, the psychology is brilliant here. They say, I completely understand. Just like you would do with one of your students in a self-defense class, you might say, look, I want you to understand safe firearms handling. If you don't want to carry it, that's great. But I want you to understand the safety aspects. In the faster class, we talk about, look, I want you to go through the medical training. That's mm-hmm. tomorrow. And in the middle of the medical training, they look at their, it's corn syrup and food coloring, but looks like blood. And they'd go, I would do anything if this, if I could stop this from being one of my kids or one of my staff members. or, And they talk themselves in that perfect circle of, I don't want to hurt anybody, but I don't want the people I love to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, those are all things where having the right information, the right training at the right time can make all the difference. Amen. Definitely. Uh, well, does it, does it ever shock you? Cause it does, does me. Most of the stories that I talk about in self-defense gun stories, I don't think most of those gun owners aren't well-trained. Mm-hmm. Some of them have their concealed carry. If they got their carry permit, that's the last class they ever took. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, maybe maybe by talking about how well they do and the parts where maybe what they could have done just a little better, maybe that'll get them to take another class. Uh, it, it, my prayer is that they all come and see you. <laughs> well, and I and I go along and point them to, to the self-defense gun stories podcast because I go along and use some of those examples to say, okay, here you get you've got your certificate from doing the concealed carry class, and you can carry 100 percent legal, no problem. But listen to the podcast and see if you don't want to come back for an additional class because that's where you go along, realize that you know the guy who comes up to your door who's unshaven who you know he's got that you know i'm going to kill you kind of look on his face like we see in the movies it doesn't happen that way it happens late at night when you're in bed or happens in the middle of a grocery store you know any number of different locations and your podcast definitely goes along and hits on those to get people start thinking about what would I do if somebody, if I, if I was pushing my kids through a parking lot and somebody randomly came up to me and tried to, you know, take my kit, you know, what would I right. do? And, and, you know, if somebody came to my door and started kicking through it, at what point can I, you know, legally shoot them without get, you know, getting into, you know, trouble? You know, can I shoot through the door? Can I do this? And those are all uh, different uh, scenarios that you've brought up, brought them out of the news. I mean, these aren't hypotheticals. You're actually reviewing news stories and you get the, you get, go along and, and review them and say, you know, what they do right and what could they have maybe have done a little bit better for it, which well, and, is great. And that came, I was with a bunch of firearms instructors. We're taking a class together. We're loading magazines and we're talking about the news. And one of the instructors had the great insight. He comes from a military background where we survived, but were we lucky or did we do the right thing? Did we do the best thing? Mm-hmm. And I realized I didn't know, and no one was talking about, you hear your door get broken in. What's best practice? 
Now, of course, that may vary. How's your home laid out? Who are you living with? But figure it out now because two in the morning is the wrong time to ask the question. Right. You know, the ones where, you know, somebody knocks on your door, you know, do you open the door and walk outside or, you know, you stay inside and do, you know, do you chase the person down the street? You know, there's been all <laughs> these different news stories that when you listen to them again, are you lucky or, you know, did you do the right thing? Because in a lot of those cases, you know, I bring them up and ask people, what would you do? And they, a lot of times they answer it from a Hollywood standpoint. You know, I would, you know, run after them and hold them at, you know, gunpoint, a citizen wow. arrest. And, you know, you got to go along and as I say, you got to unpack that because it's like, okay, you're in a house, you know, everything that's in the house and you're going into an unknown being outside and you're going down the street. And all of a sudden, you know, the light bulb goes off to where it's like, I probably shouldn't do that. It's like, it probably would be better for you to stay where you're safe at so you can be there for your family. And that's the one thing I've, uh, I bring it all the way around to. Yes, Hollywood's got some great actions. You know, John Wick movies are fun to watch. But at the end of the day, we're not responsible for trying to clean up society. We're trying to go along, just, you know, be safe and be there for uh, tomorrow for our families. And if anything goes against those two things, we've really got to examine what we're doing and change, change things. Right. Your number one pro priority is don't get shot. Mm -hmm. Or <laughs> not even be in a situation where you got to worry about that. Right. You know? They're better so, yet. You know, that, that, that's, you know, one of those types of things to where, um, yeah, if the instructors here don't listen to uh, self-defense gun stories, I recommend you do. I've been listening to it now for five years. And like I said, I've, I picked up little tips and also gotten confirmation in the past about, eh, I never really thought, you know, about that because you had one, uh, just a couple months ago where somebody started kicking in the door, hadn't broke through the door completely. But the person decided they they uh, would start shooting because they were able to reach inside the door and, and they started to unlock. And that's right. one of those situations to where, yeah, we always tell people don't shoot through the door. But do you wait until the door is open completely or do you do you wait until they make a motion that they could potentially be opening the door? You know, those types of things. And those are questions that are hypothetical for you and I, but that really happened in real life. And that takes a few minutes to examine that and figure out what the pros and cons are in those kind of situations. I, I, let me offer another question. I understand that this podcast is aimed at instructors, but I would offer it th to them this way. A lot of your students will take your class and then not carry. And letting them know that thousands of people a day found out they needed a firearm. Violence is real, and you do do a good job. Don't be afraid of it. Learn, become competent, carry every day. This helps people feel good about making that decision. Mm -hmm. Yep. I can go along and challenge my students, the ones that aren't sure they want to carry, is, yeah. you know, remember there's still violence out there. So do you have a pepper spray? Do you have a taser? Things along those mm -hmm. lines, because some of us work in non-permissive environments. So you've got to have options besides just going along and saying, just put your arms up and hope they don't shoot you. I, I don't like, I don't like that option. And that's where, okay, you know, pepper spray, you know, mace, you know, um, you know, some, some way of doing it, you know, even if you can't carry those, you know, most people, especially women get away with carrying like a coupon. Or if you can't carry Kubaton, you can go along and use something improvised. You know, we've all got staplers on our desk, you know, things like that that we can use that can make it extremely difficult on the person who's trying to inflict harm on you. And you just got to think about that before it happens, because to your point, it might not be two o'clock in the morning, but 
if I'm at work and I'm on a phone call and all of a sudden something happens, I sure better be thinking about that. I can grab, you know, a binder, I can grab something heavy and use it as, as a defensive tool than to go along and sit there and start thinking, okay, what do I have on my desk and where do I have to go get it in order to be safe and be there for my family tomorrow? Um, because a number of my instructors enjoy martial arts I think the, the greatest advantage for men or women in learning martial arts isn't necessarily your extreme skill, but your attitude. You know, you're going through the uh, parking lot and somebody puts a hand on you. Look, if, if you were about to step on something, you know, you weren't paying attention, that's one thing. But they have the instincts to turn and immediately address that problem rather than pretend it didn't happen. I mean, they're... They already have a solution set that's loaded. Mm -hmm. um, and for you and I, because we don't do that once a week in a dojo, that gets reinforced a couple times a year when we take self-defense classes and then there's a hands-on hand component. Um, um, what do you think about force-on-force -force training? I think it's definitely got its place at the right time for, uh, for students. Um, not in a CCW class, maybe not even no. an advanced class for it. But when they when they start really getting comfortable with the uh, move, shoot, be able to use uh, obstacles, different things along those lines, barricades to get behind, go along and start uh, mixing things up a little bit. Where you go along, and all of a sudden they've got to they're going to know what it feels like to have a gun pulled on them, because most of us never have had a gun pulled on us, and we don't realize how fast it could go. I mean, we Again, we watch movies and we figure if they can draw, if they pull a gun on us, we can pull it just as fast on them, right? And that's one of those things to where, again, try it and let's see what happens. Um, because right. I'll quote, um, Dave Spalding on this one. If you've got a, somebody who's got one second draw, you know, which everybody's in the, on the internet's trying to get to, and you get somebody with a two second draw, who's going to go along and get shot? And the answer is pretty simple. Both of them. Because it takes your body over a second to realize after uh, that it got shot. So when you think about it from that standpoint, maybe you need to go along and not just perfect your draw, but also go along and perfect what your actions along with your draw is going to be, i.e. like moving out of the way of their bullet when it comes uh, toward you. And those are important things for students to know and understand. And doing the force on force allows them to you know, really see how things can un uh, unravel very quickly um, when i when i've done it we've done different scenarios taken out of the news where people come into restaurants and then hold the restaurant up and what happens going along and even even from a standpoint of doing a simulated uh drug arrest for it, you see two see two people in plain clothes and you've got to make a quick decision is that somebody holding them up or is that a undercover cop doing a doing an arrest and all those things have certain implications to where you've got to go along and take the information you do know and also what your role is overall and figure out, okay, this is what I'm willing to do. Because sometimes when they choose the wrong solution, I, you know, you unpack it afterwards when you do the debriefing and they realize that they just pointed a gun at a police officer. You know, that's felonious assault right. on a police officer. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, that's, that's one that you can spend a lot of time in jail for. And you don't really have much of a defense for it. But people don't realize that because 
again, we've seen that so many times on Hollywood that we just think, okay, if it's a bad guy, you know, or we assume it's a bad guy, we just point the gun at and everything's fine. But some <laughs> bad guys are brazen enough to go along and say, you're not going to shoot me and basically come up and take a gun from you. Yeah. Yeah. So that so many lessons there. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There's, and that's where force on force. Again, I recommend the instructors take a good class. Carl Ren's got a good class, uh, for if you've never done force on force to understand what the goals of it is, because the goal is not to go along, make it into a game where you shoot everybody. And the game is all the, the purpose is also not to make the students go along and lose every time you want to make sure there's some wins in there. So they actually understand this makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And allow people to take and examine what was going through their minds at the times. And that, that's really, really helped for it. The first time they go through it, they make mistakes. Second time they make a few more, but by the third time, they've got a pretty good sense about what they should and shouldn't be doing. And there's no harm in them going along and deciding to leave the scene of the crime because they're not involved with it. I, I do remember, um, at, I think it was at the tactical conference, and, you know, you're in a class, but sometimes watching other people work through those problems, that was almost as valuable, sometimes more so because you could see more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You weren't, and, you, and you also hear their feedback to where it's like, well, I saw you come up. I was thinking this, but it really turned into that because right. you can go back and see how... Yeah, I saw that completely unravel, but when you're just focused on the person in front of you, this is where th these are the problems you run into. And that's where, again, good force on force, um, done properly, done safely, can really go along, reinforce those kind of lessons. Especially, I like to do it right after we've done some, uh, some live fire practice at, on targets to where, okay, we're moving, we're shooting, and we're envisioning things. Okay, let's go along, sterilize the environment. Now let's do it uh, force on force. And all of a sudden, they start seeing why we, why we do certain drills to get them to move while they're shooting. Or else, again, you're going to end up catching a bullet at, because they're shooting at the same time you're shooting. Rob, I, I want to add to that list. I was just in a, in a qualification class, and it was fascinating. When we did force on force, some of the people who were better at it weren't necessarily the ones that were best on the range. Exactly. They're different skills. Another thing that was fascinating was to put them into a no-shoot situation. Mm -hmm. Oh, you've got a role player. They're laying in the hallway. They're wounded. You come around the door. There's somebody standing there with a gun, but the gun's being held by the barrel. They're looking mm -hmm. down at somebody that's at the ground. Do you shoot? Mm -hmm. So... And especially right after we come off the range where you hear the buzzer, you go. We're shooting everything. Yeah, we're shooting everything. And I, uh, one of my instructors calls it tactical patience. I think John Korea calls it waiting your turn. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you wait your turn because you don't want to move against a drawn gun when the, with the guy looking at you. And sometimes you exercise tactical patience because you're not rock solid sure about what's happening yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not, it's not a direct threat to you yet, but you've got, you've got to go along and be ready. And you got to start taking in as much information, which might, which might include asking some questions about, you know, what's going on. Right. That, that was fascinating about some uh, police officers that were in this class with us. They were very good at asking questions because that's part of their job. 
can you c- come here, sir, and talk to me? He's testing for compliance. Because mm-hmm. he goes, this can go lots of ways. I can help you out of this problem, or you can dig a hole for yourself. You know, <laughs> and as as uh, as a civilian, I don't engage that many people with that level of authority that often. It was mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Well, and in fact, very seldom, if ever, are we ever going to engage somebody who has a gun who's not a, which we're not sure about whether they're a threat to us or not. And that's where you know police are. You know, going to crime scenes constantly to where we may only be at a crime scene if we have to defend ourselves once in our entire lives. Hopefully less, you know, no more, you know, hopefully it's zero in our entire lives, but we still have to be prepared for it. You know, um, I hear what you're saying. I thought that was true. Did you ever play uh, uh, organized sports? Yes. Okay. Did you ever end up, I, 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 was doing field sports and track and things that sometimes would run late in the evening. You couldn't see everybody clearly, mm-hmm. but you identified everybody by the way they moved. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's true. I've seen volleyball players do the same thing. It was too quick for me to see them, but I knew who they were because of the way they stood and moved. And uh, off, uh, officer was describing, why didn't you shoot that guy? Because he didn't stand there with a gun in his hand like a bad guy. He was a compressed, high ready. It looked like the sole position. He was behind cover looking around. That wasn't somebody looking to shoot somebody. That looked like me when I'd been through training. Therefore, mm-hmm. I didn't put a bullet in him. Yep, exactly. So there's a lot of nonverbal cues if we're willing to listen to him. Yep. And that's, and that's where you can go through a lot of training, you know, get better at shooting targets, but it's not until you put that in practice to actually exercise that muscle between our ears to go along and pick up on those nonverbal cues about going along and figuring out, you know, what is the best solution here, you know, to, so I can wake up my own bed tomorrow morning. And those are all things that you can read books, you can do things, but when you actually go along, get put to the test and under the pressure, it, it goes along and really solidifies how your thinking is like, yeah, that wasn't a very good, uh, good choice. Or it's like, yeah, I'm, I would do that again if that happened to me yeah and what's so fascinating is there is a time to talk and then when you see this muzzle of a gun start being pointed toward you maybe it's time to stop talking mm-hmm. yeah. yeah exactly well hey rob great information i really like how we go um in season six we've been going along asking all our guests what would you like to be remembered for after you pass away so i'll oh, turn it over to you to ex- describe fun this. <laughs> so what do I want on my epitaph? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, let me think. Oh, no, there. Yeah. Okay. I've had the luxury of time. I help people find what I think of our good answers at slow facts, at self-defense gun stories. And sometimes that's by being able to look a little deeper at the question. So, if if when I'm gone, somebody said, you know, he helped me understand some questions a little better, that'd be a great epitaph. I'd love to be known that way. Good. That's good. And uh, hopefully everybody's uh, thinking about what they uh, might want to be remembered for once they uh, pass away, because none of us are going to be here forever. And uh, what we do with our students and, and everything definitely uh, 
will be remembered long past uh, when when we're around on this earth, that's for sure. Well, Rob, where can people find more information about you, any classes you're teaching, and also your blog? Well, let me remind you, I host the Self-Defense Gun Stories podcast. What have I got? Uh, I think I've looked at 1,200 self-defense events. I'm on episode in the low 300s right now. About 20 minutes, comes out once a week. Six, seven different instructors, so we get lots of points of view. I'm a co-host on the Polite Society podcast, 90 minutes once a week. I write the Slow Facts blog. I try and get on there a couple times a week. From there, my writing is picked up at Clash Daily, Ops Lens, sometimes about at the uh, Truth About Guns. Robert, thank you for having me on. Super, Rob. I definitely appreciate you uh, being being on and for sharing your information not only on this podcast but also on your on the internet and such. Because as I pointed out to the instructors in the beginning, knowing where to find good, solid information that's more so than just glossing over that we see in the media these days is uh, a rare find. And I I see your slow facts and your self defense gun stories being two very good resources. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. I hope you found the information we talked about with Rob Morse very interesting. Maybe uh, check out his blog and maybe share it with some of your friends because it's uh, interesting information and good to have uh, solid facts when you're talking about uh, your 2A rights and self-defense. If you're searching for information, don't forget, we've got a search capability on our website, farmtrainerpodcast.com, in the upper right-hand corner. Just type in whatever you're looking for and see what podcast we have. We have over 250 episodes currently, so I'm sure we probably have one that will uh, help you out in whatever your quest is. Also, go along. If you have any questions, email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Visit our sponsors, Fire Trainers Association, ftaprotect.com, and check out their coverage. And don't forget to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off on your policy. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe out there, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.